If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. The, uh, the text is printed for you on the next page of your bulletins. If you're able to remain standing, I invite you to, to remain standing as, as we read God's word together. If you need to take a seat, no problem. Uh, our reading this morning is uh, kind of the, a little bit more than the first half, but the first half of, of chapter 6 of 2 Kings. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 23. So let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe had fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants, and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me. And I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. All right. Well, this morning, 
Uh, this will be the last time that uh, we are, we're in this series about Elijah and Elisha. We were not able to, uh, to bring it to a, a conclusion as, as we started back at the, the beginning of this year, looking at these two great Old Testament prophets of Elisha and then Elisha. And so, unfortunately, we won't be able to resolve the story of Elisha, but I'm, I'm grateful this is where we're ending because these two stories, I think, mean so much. Um, they, they help us grasp who Elisha is. And that's been one of the purposes of this sermon series, is to go to these portions of the Old Testament that maybe we're not as familiar with, and at least understand these, these two noticeable names, or notable names, of Elijah and Elisha. What is the function uh, of, of these two prophets? Why are they in our Bibles? Why are they in the history of Israel? And so remember, the last time I'll say this, they're the hinge, right? They point back to Moses and Joshua, and they swing forward looking to John the Baptist and then the ministry of Jesus. And we'll see more of Jesus' ministry here today in 2 Kings 6. These are two stories that I don't think could be any more different, right? In the first scene, you have these prophets who are working on a building project, and one of the prophets is at work felling wood, and he, uh, his axe head presumably just swings off the, the staff, and it goes into the Jordan River. It sinks, and the guy panics, and then Elisha comes to the rescue. Think about some of your favorite TV shows, especially sitcoms are, are kind of structured in, this, in the way that I'm thinking. So think of maybe like Seinfeld or, or The Office. That there's always an A plot. That's usually the name of the episode. That's, that's taking up the majority of the time. But then they're, they're often, or there's always a B plot too. There's a B plot, different story that runs parallel. And then sometimes there's even a, a, a C plot, which is a third storyline that's running in parallel with the A and B plots. A lost axe head sounds like what to you? I mean, that's not an A plot, right? That's barely a B plot. Maybe this is like C plot material. And yet here it is, six verses in our Bibles. This is not the life and death crisis that we've been, been accustomed to in the ministry of Elisha. But one man's lost axe makes it into our Bibles as one of the miracles that God performs through his prophet Elisha. Now, in the second story, uh, it couldn't be any more different because you have Elisha in the center of a geopolitical conflict. He is a key figure helping to make decisions in this ongoing war between Israel and this enemy neighbor to the north, Syria. And so as small scale as the Acts story is, the second story is the opposite. It's as grand as stories come. Kings and armies, Elisha the prophet, determining the outcome of military maneuvers. Not just earthly nations and rulers and armies, but you have heaven's armies with, with chariots and horses of fire. You have an entire army struck blind, taken as prisoners of war into enemy territory, which is Israel, and then given eyes to see again. You know what we talk about when we, when we talk about stories like this, right? We say they are of biblical proportion. This sounds biblical, doesn't it? Both of these stories have so much to teach us with regards to how we think of our world, how we think about our, ourselves, our faith, how we come to understand God in our experiences in this world. Here's what I mean by that. So I put this quote at the beginning of your bulletin in the Consider page by C.S. Lewis. And this is where I want us to think about heading into 2 Kings 6. He says this, he says, Each miracle writes for us in small letters something that God has already written or will write in letters almost too large to be noticed across the whole canvas of nature. Here's what he's saying. These extraordinary miracles teach us about ordinary life. 
These extraordinary miracles teach us about how God is all of the time. These kinds of miracles aren't recorded so that we would sit around and just wish that God would just do these extravagant miracles for us. Instead, they help us to grasp, this is the God who is always available for you. This is the God who's always in your midst. And so what these miracles do is they communicate that is who he is and in, in many ways, as we'll see, and this translates for us, even though we're not ancient Israel, in many ways this speaks a lot to who we are too. And so we'll look at three reminders of who God is for us this morning, what, what these miracles convey to us about who God is for our very ordinary lives. And so first of all, we'll see the compassion of God, secondly, the sovereignty of God, and then thirdly, the sustaining grace of God. All right, so let's start with the compassion of God. Chapter 6 opens with the sons of the prophets undergoing a building project. If you remember earlier, especially in the ministry of Elijah, this happens under the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, Jezebel, uh, who who are, are instituting Baal worship in Israel. They're persecuting the people of God. And so at one point we hear about these sons of the prophets who we don't know very much about them. They're they're typically in the background. And at some point we're told they're hiding out in caves because they're fearing that Jezebel is going to come and persecute them and kill them. Well, Ahab and Jezebel are are now dead. And so there is relative safety under the son of, of Ahab, who's probably Jehoram. And so at this point, they're out of the cave. Wherever they were living was too small for how successful this ministry is going. And so they say, we want to expand the offices. We want to head down to the Jordan and build some new offices for the sons of the prophets. And they ask Elisha to come with them after Elisha gives them permission. So let's pick up at verse 4. One of them comes to the Jordan. They cut down the trees. And as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and he threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Again, why in the world are these six verses in our Bibles? If I took a little informal survey and I asked you, what is not in the Bible that you wish the Bible spoke to? I think we would get a really solid list of things. Like some things that we would say are pretty important to know, the Bible just doesn't really speak to. Uh, This is not a very big book. I mean, it's kind of big, but in terms of the annals of history, it's not too big of a book. And so why in the world do six verses have to do with this guy's axe head? Why is it in the Bible? Why this story about a sunken axe head? I'm just going to go with one reason. I think there are a couple reasons, but here's here's the main reason. God cares. God cares about his people. God cares about us. He sees the details of our lives and all of the things that rack us with anxiety. Don't ever forget the original audience of kings, right? It's those who are in exile, those who are sitting in the rubble of their lives, those who are wondering, where is God in all of this? Is there even a future that we can hope for? We are surrounded, we are enveloped by grief and loss and suffering. And this little story is this kind of reminder that God sees and he cares. Jesus told us not to worry and he said, consider the ravens. They don't have, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have barns or storehouses and yet they eat. So don't worry. The author of Kings says, consider the axe heads. I think one of the greatest mistakes that we can make, I think we make it all the time, I think it's a spiritual warfare thing, I think this is one of the tactics of, of Satan, is for us to think that God doesn't care. Right? We, we triage our pain. 
We triage our suffering. We say, is it, is it worthy of God? And that comes from a place of pride. I mean, I've dealt with this many times in, in my own life. I'm sure some of you have as well. You, you talk to the scoffer who says, so you're trying to tell me that the God of the universe, right? I can, I can, I can agree. There's a, a God who has created all things, but you're telling me he cares about your sprained ankle. You're telling me that God cares about your job interview next Tuesday. Really? The God of all of the universe cares about those things, and that comes from a place of pride, doesn't it? It comes from a place of understanding, I'm going to project who God is. God is just a bigger version of myself. I can't be bothered with the small things. And so this God that I'm projecting, this big human, he also can't be bothered. It's the voice of the scoffer. It's the spirit of the scoffer that said to Jesus, if you really are the son of God, rescue yourself and come down from the cross. But what if God is not a projection of us? What if God is most revealed in a crucifixion? That's where the wisdom and strength of God is found. A good measure of your growth in grace and knowledge is how dependent are you on God for absolutely everything? Absolutely everything. I think that's what this story is conveying. Remember, Elisha, as a prophet, he doesn't just represent uh, the spokesperson for God. That's often how we think of prophets. I think that's, that's legitimate most of the time. But if, if you notice, Elisha is always called the, the man of God, which really could be translated the God-man. And so I've talked about Elisha being the temple presence. When Elisha is on the scene, Elisha represents God. God is present. And so there's something kind of beautiful about these prophets who want to go build these new facilities, and they ask Elisha to go with them. I mean, isn't that significant? To ask God to go with us in our daily endeavors. Why? Because God wants all of us. He wants all of us. And so does God care about your car repair? Well, the God of axe heads does. Does God care about your chemistry exam? Yeah. Does God care about axe heads sinking? John Stark, who is a pastor in New York, writes that, that prayer is either the greatest insanity or the most wonderful noose. And he talks about, you know, why does the God of the Crab Nebula, right? This Crab Nebula is a remnant star that exploded in 1054 A.D., it's 6,000 light years away. Why does that God notice us? Why does that God attend to sinking axe heads? It's the audacity of our belief in the God who has revealed himself in the Bible. Again, we can, we can operate understanding that God is a God of infinite power, but can we really grasp that God is a God of infinite love and care? How do we get our minds around a God of infinite care? Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of my tossing, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? Every tear inventoried by your God. Every tossing, right? I, you can say, I, I, was, you know, I, I tossed and turned all night, I didn't, I didn't sleep at all, and you can imagine God saying, well, eventually you conked out. After turn 177, I kept count. And so 2 Kings 6, again, put down to parchment for a people in exile is this remarkable little story about the God who just quite simply cares. So the takeaway is simple. Uh, while the people are in exile wondering what in the world the future looks like, we can, we can find some similarity with them. It's not to trivialize their suffering. That's, that's pretty significant. But again, it is to recognize that we are all sufferers under our own sins, under our own weaknesses, living in this world. And so we are surrounded with trials, aren't we? 
We're often faced with an unknown, murky future. And so when we are confronted with trials that overwhelm us, I think this is the kind of passage that reminds us that God attends the needs of his people. 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves. It begins with humility. There's a humility involved to recognize that I don't get to define God. He gets to define himself. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. That's the compassion of God that our passage speaks to. Secondly, let's look at the sovereignty of God. Second point, the sovereignty of God. So right after the story of the axe head, the scene shifts abruptly. We don't really know when this happened. There's not a chronological marker. It just says once. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel. Again, we have no idea when these events took place. If you remember last time we were out in 2 Kings, a couple weeks ago, 2 Kings 5, you have Naaman, who's the, the enemy Syrian general, but he comes into Israel. It's a time of peace. The kings are cordial with one another, but now there is war. And the problem is that every time the Syrians devise a plan, every time they, they use these kind of military tactics to, to surprise the Israelites, Israel is there waiting for them. And their plans are thwarted. And so the king of Syria, uh, he does what all of us would do. He starts asking, where's the mole? Where's the person in these inner courts who, who's giving the information to the enemy? And the servants of the Syrian king responded, no, no, there's no mole here, O Lord, my king. It's Elisha, the prophet in Israel, with his great line. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. It's a great line, right? It just encapsulates everything about who Elisha is. You are safe from nowhere, king, if Elijah's there. Even in your own bedroom, when your own counselors aren't allowed in there, and yet no information is safe. No information is hidden from God. Elisha knows everything you're doing. So the king gathers up a great army, and he says, let's get rid of Elisha then. And they come and surround the city where Elisha is. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw... And he beheld the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's one of the great enduring scenes of the Bible, isn't it? The Syrians have Elisha surrounded. He's not an army. right? He doesn't represent any kind of military force. Uh, and, and so the, the servant of Elisha looks around and just says, uh-oh. We're doomed. We're dead. They're up against, I mean, to say they're up against overwhelming odds is is putting it lightly, isn't it? And Elisha says, do not be afraid, even though we're surrounded by this powerful army. By the way, typically an army in Syria is far more powerful than even Israel's army. And, And yet Elisha says, do not be afraid. Why? Because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. At this point, the servant says, what do you mean? And then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. That's when he sees this mountain full of chariots and horses of fire. It's as if the servant has put on heaven vision goggles, right? Like night vision goggles. You can imagine standing in the middle of a dense forest in the middle of the night. It's super dark. You can't see three feet in front of your face. You put on the night vision goggles and all of a sudden you see the outline of the trees. You see movement in the forest. These are heaven vision goggles that say all of that ordinary reality that you just thought was there. There's so much more behind that. 
What were once just mountains and hills that lay in the background behind the Syrian troops all of a sudden becomes this new reality that this servant finds himself in. And the prayer of Elisha, I think, translates throughout generation after generation. Oh, Lord, please open our eyes so that we might see. It was a takeaway that right now, if we all had these eyes to see, that we would see all these chariots and horses of fire uh, in, in the golf college. I don't think so. Maybe, probably not. More than likely, the takeaway is that at, at the first command, God's angels are on the ready. The Lord of hosts is ready to send his troops. Any moment, God is able and, and, and ready to intervene in this world because it's his. Everything that happens in this world is according to the counsel of his will, under his sovereign plan. And so I think this is one of those passages that speaks especially to those of us in this room that struggle with fear. I count myself as someone that that has has a struggle with fear very often. And there are so many different ways according to our circumstances where we can cry out, Alas, what shall we do? We have fears about our culture. We have fears about our family. We have fears about our own kind of individual futures. We have fears about our health. We have fears about our finances, right? What keeps you up at night? When all of a sudden you wake up and that thought comes in your mind and you can't fall back asleep, what keeps you up at night? Take a moment. Just think about it. Think about what what, what gives you stress. Think about what gives you distress. Think about what keeps you up. Would it make any difference if we believed that in the most difficult circumstances of our lives, God is in our midst? Would it make any difference? God is in our midst and he's not powerless. Even in our very hard circumstances, even in our trials, God is in our midst, but he's not angry looking to punish us. But God is in our midst as our faithful God of promise-keeping love who will never leave us or forsake us. And so our prayer this morning is, oh Lord, please open our eyes that we may see. That we may know that God upholds all things, that God is in our midst, that that every hardship, every trial, every struggle is, is orchestrated by God for our good, right? Think of a symphony. Think of like clashing cymbals. Like what if your life just felt like you were walking around with cymbals clashing by your head all the time? You would say, my life is, is, is in a horrible place at this point. But then you take those clashing cymbals and you put them in the symphony. And all of a sudden, the work that, 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 that the composer is composing makes sense. And even clashing symbols, which would be jarring most of the time, they find their place. That's something along with what God is doing with us. The Syrian army is in the hands of God. Martin Luther called the devil God's devil. Even he is kept on a chain. I know many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, the, the kind of allegory of the Christian life by the Puritan John Bunyan, and, and, and he talks about kind of coming, or the Christian, the main character, he's been going through hill difficulty. Bunyan's a little bit on the nose with his allegory, right? So he's, he's living through hill difficulty, and he's trying to make it to Palace Beautiful, but he's been warned, when you are on the path to Palace Beautiful, you're going to find two lions on the way. And so Christian approaches this path to Palace Beautiful, and sure enough, there are those lions, and then Bunyan writes these words. He says, the lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. That's a tough lesson to grasp. 
that the lions are chained, that the struggles we endure are chained. And so we live in the care of the God who is also sovereign over all things, including our trials. Lord, open our eyes that we may see. To live not by sight, but to live by faith. To live according to our ears and the promises of God and not by sight, not by what's just in front of us. To know that what we see isn't all there is. All right, so 2 Kings 6. It shows us the God who cares about axe heads, the God who is sovereign in in the way that that I think we can resonate with, that that heaven's army is available at, at God's command. And then finally, we'll see how this passage helps us to grasp God's sustaining grace. And this is where we'll end, God's sustaining grace. The story ends in a crazy way. It ends in an unexpected way. So much of Elisha's ministry uh, stands out in the Old Testament. I hope that's been a theme throughout his life. And and this is a pretty remarkable example about how Elisha continues to pave the way to Jesus. He continues to shape the pattern that Jesus will not only fill, but he will transcend it. He will blow it up. The Syrians are struck with blindness, and Elijah takes them on a journey, basically as prisoners of war. He leads them down into the capital of Israel, uh, Samaria. That's where Israel's king is, probably Jehoram. Although notice, everybody's anonymous in this story except for Elisha. What is God doing through Elisha? That's the point. So again, he leads him into Samaria. Jehoram is probably there. And the prisoners are taken into the midst of Samaria. And it's there where Elisha prays for them to have their sight restored. The king of Israel sees that he has a city filled with the enemy that's been taken captive. And he asks Elisha in verse 21, My father, shall I strike them down? And maybe Elisha didn't respond because he asks him again, My father, shall I strike them down? Now let's just pause real quick. That's a great start for the kings of Israel. We have not seen a king in Israel be this faithful. He doesn't have to guess what to do. He has the word of God in Elisha with him. And things go well when we begin with inquiring of God. But then things get strange. Elisha says, no, don't strike them down. And that should have us all with a little bit of pause, right? I mean, this is not like a gentle neighboring nation. This is the Syrians. They are raiding in Israel. They're not residents of the land, so this isn't holy war. But they are the the northern neighbors who are continually going on raids. Remember Naaman's servant girl. She was stolen on one of those raids. And here Elisha says, no, don't strike them. Instead, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. We're going to send them back home to Syria, but first we're going to make sure they have something to eat, some bread and water. And then in verse 23, things get even weirder because Elisha says, king, give them bread and water, and the king prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Like, what is going on in the ministry of Elisha, right? 2 Kings 5, you you have the baptism, so to speak, of Naaman, who is this Gentile military leader. In this chapter, you have a royal banquet that's spread out before an invading army. God invites the enemy in, and he prepares a feast for them. Uh, it, It would have been expected. It would have been reasonable. It would have been just for God to send down his army of chariots and horses of fire to consume the Syrians, but he blinds them in order to give them sight, and he brings them a feast in order to nourish them and send them back home. I mean, isn't that a picture of us? Isn't this a picture of what God does for sinners in the gospel? 
A people deserving of judgment who are given their lives and then given sight, right? Isn't that what salvation is? Is that we have sight. And what is the sight? It's not to see our greatness. It's to see the severity of our sin. It's to see the worthiness of God's judgment. And it's not only to receive pardon, but then God says, I'm going to feed you too. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to sustain you. I mean, isn't this whole scene like a spotlight to the work of the better Elisha? It's hard not to see a parallel scene between 2 Kings 6 and Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 26. This is when Jesus has been betrayed and arrested and then, and then Peter comes out and he's going to play the role of hero. And so he takes his little sword and he attacks the servant of the high priest. And Jesus says, put it away. And what does Jesus say? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Same angels at the ready, right? Same legion of angels that Elisha's servant saw and was comforted by. Peter, don't you see? But Jesus doesn't call for the angels. He goes to the cross for those who cannot see. He goes to the cross for those who are enemies in order to reconcile them to God. God calls his enemies and he spreads a feast before us. That's what this meal is right here, this table that's in front of me that's before you. This is a meal of sustaining grace. This is a meal where we come to experience with one another as the blind and as dead men walking, Jesus' faithfulness, his work, his victory on our behalf. And it's once we've been fed that God sends us back into our callings transformed. We leave this place nourished, which means we leave this reminded of how we're justified yet sinful, which has to mean that we're leaving this place as those who are humble. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that wasn't given? We leave here as those who are to love because we have been loved. We're to leave here as those who are to forgive simply because we are those who have been forgiven. So what do you do with this kind of bizarre chapter in 2 Kings 6? You remember the God who cares because he is the God of sunken axe heads. You remember the sovereignty of the God who's in our midst. And you remember and you experience, even here this morning in just a couple of minutes, the sustaining work of the God who feeds us by his grace and then sends us back into our lives to live out our callings as those who belong to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these, these pictures, these stories that, that grasp our imaginations from the youngest among us to the oldest, Lord, we, we are gripped by pictures of the care of the God who comes and, and redeems an axe head. We're shaped by the picture of, of knowing exactly what it is to cry out in, in, in less maybe terrifying circumstances. Alas, what are we supposed to do? And to be reminded that we are surrounded, that we are in the midst of the living God. Lord, that you are not only the all-powerful one, you are the all-caring one, the all-loving one, the one who loves us. Lord, would you shape us uh, by that word? 
Lord, as we enter into this time where uh, we gather around this feast, which is just a foretaste of the better feast to come. It's just a small sample with, with a too small piece of bread and a too small cup of wine. Uh, the, the feast of, of rich foods, which is the, the, the picture the Bible gives us of, of that great wedding banquet with the lamb. Lord, would we remember that we are those who are to be nourished and sustained by you. That you have stooped to us. That you have condescended to us. You've lowered yourself to us so that we might experience you here, even at this table. That we are not sent out of this place in order to achieve and earn our standing with you, but because of who we are by grace, by what you are working in us and the ways that you work through us, that you send us out of this place fed and full. Lord, by your spirit, would we leave this place knowing those realities of our fullness, of our nourishment in you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Uh, there's no better word. We thank you for this word, which just points to that greatest truth of what you've done in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.